Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purpose Podcast. My name is Haas Rauscher. The goal of this podcast is to help men find and fulfill their purpose. I'm going to help them be good, strong leaders, good, strong men, good male role models in their communities. I'm going to do that by having conversations, I'm going to invite guests on. I'm going to ask our guests, what is your purpose? What do you think your purpose ought to be? How did you find that purpose? And what do you do every single day? How do you get up, get after it, and go and fulfill that purpose? Today we are going over the, this is a purpose book club episode. We're going over Blood Meridian. This is going to be episode three, I believe, covering section two in the book. Uh, basically following the kid from Chihuahua City to uh, a later destination if you haven't gotten that far yet. Um, hopefully you guys are reading along with me. Um, I hope that you're staying on top of the book, uh, getting your pages in. Uh, that would be really cool to know that you are. Um so basically it's chapters 7 to 19. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but chapter 7 to 19, uh, if you have already read the book, uh, it's chapter 7 to 19 that we're going to go over. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, as we talked about in the intro, uh, this is, this book is episodic. What does that mean? That means that, um, things happen in episodes. There's no like giant arcing plot. There kind of is, but not really exactly. Uh, there's just episodes that eventually come to a conclusion. Um, each episode kind of has its own plot and there's a little bit of a subplot, but not really. Um, I'm trying to think of like a, I don't know, maybe like a, a big bang theory, which is kind of a shitty analogy, but that's what first comes to mind of that. There's no just major plot through the whole series of episodes. Um, but each episode and each season, there are subplots. It's kind of like that. It's not a beginning, middle, and end. It's not like a movie. Um, very, very much like a sitcom type structure. Uh, so there's a lot to cover in the middle section. And a lot of what you can cover on this book, because a lot of you are going to be like, oh, well, why didn't you cover this? Why didn't you cover this? Well, I thought this was really interesting. And, um, well, I did some research and the most important part of the book, he didn't even hit. I think that, um, th this book being so episodic, uh, you're going to, I'm going to cover what really stands out to me. And I think that that's, what's going to happen to the reader is the reader, whatever stands out to them is what they're going to leave the book with. There is no major plot. I mean, there's not, it's not like the Hunger Games to where you must talk about the first games. Uh, there are things that you probably should talk about in here. There's a general idea. Uh, but it's not like these typical fiction books that um, everybody is talking about the same thing because the book strikes people in so many different ways. And that's part of the reason I've had such a hard time trying to figure out what to talk about on this book uh, is because it strikes me in so many different ways. And it's such a, a prominent book that I want to do it justice. So um, we're going to talk about a few different things. Again, I'm not here to read the whole book to you. Uh, if you, <laughs> um, I'm going to try to do my best, but if you're not reading the book and you're just here for funsies, uh, there may be some context missing. I'm going to do it my best and read whole passages for you to try to give you that context. But, um, this is a book that if you're going to try to follow it and going to get the most out of it, you really need to go read it all. Uh, in my opinion, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to help you out because this book club is designed for people that don't exactly read all the time. Uh, so I'm going to do my best. That comes with the standard. Uh, if you listen to last week's episode, it got kind of spicy. Um, that comes with the, uh, 
the standard uh, disclaimer that there are things in this book that are uncomfortable, that make you uncomfortable. They're violent. Uh, they're filled with hate. There are words in here that are filled with hate, and a lot more of them than just the one that we all think about. Uh, there are a lot of things in here that are not uh, cute and cuddly and supposed to make you feel good. Uh, I'm going to say some of them uh, in this episode. Some of the passages that I absolutely must tell you in order to get the full effect of the book have these words in them. So, just a disclaimer. Um, it's going to make you uncomfortable. That's the only That's the only thing. And if you have a problem with certain words uh, that are written all across time, then just leave, I guess. Just fucking leave. Go listen to another podcast. Um, I don't have time or attention uh, for you. So, um, no, that's not to say if, if the violence makes you uncomfortable and you're going to get, you know... Um, you're going to throw up because of the violence or whatever, a different, different story. Uh, but if you think that the words that I'm going to be saying are violence, just because they're being said, uh, you have no place at this podcast. So go, I think, you know, other people have podcasts that you might be a little bit more interested in. So, um, anyway, with that being said, uh, basically some of the backstory is, I think we ended off with them getting wiped out, uh, by the Comanche, uh, I don't want to call it a horde, but the, uh, a tribe of Comanches that just absolutely decimated uh, the filibusters that the kid fell in with. They end up going, not much, some of some things happen, but they end up in Chihuahua City. Uh, he, one of his friends dies, and then uh, he ends up in Chihuahua City in the prison. Uh, he sees the captain's head in a jar, which is kind of funny, uh, but ends up in prison in Chihuahua City. Uh, he meets, actually, he meets Toadvine there, which is really cool because Toadvine is a character that he met and he fought with. Uh, I believe it was back in Nacogdoches. I could be wrong about that. Uh, it could have been at a different town. I, I need to go back and look. Um, I, I believe it was in Nacogdoches that he met uh, Toadvine, and they run into each other again in Mexico, which is kind of weird. Um but uh, I believe he says something like, I think I've got it marked here. Oh, man, I don't, I, I'm failing. I, I don't have it marked. Uh, basically, uh, Toadvine says, you don't know me, do you? And then the kid says, I know you're hiding a tannery. Um, so they run into each other. Basically, what happens is somebody, I think, recognizes Toadvine in the prison. Toadvine goes and talks to him and says, hey, look, we're the baddest of the bad. Uh, we'll kill Indians with the best of them. Um, get us on your gang. And so pick us up, draft us. Uh, so what they do, they get the guys out of prison to go be scalp hunters. Um, so basically this, this is where this section starts. Uh, not long after that, I believe this is in chapter, um, sorry, the guys, this is my first time doing a book this complicated. I should have wrote chapter numbers by my notes. Uh, to let you know, uh, and the reason that chapter numbers are so important, just, just an FYI, if you dive deeper into this book and you didn't get the modern library version of mine, uh, page numbers don't exactly translate because, you know, different print sizes and stuff like that. Uh, so just a heads up because I have been very confused when I go back to look at like, again, notes on blood Meridian by John Seppich. Uh, he does not use this version. And so the page numbers are kind of off. So you have to find context. Uh, this is in chapter seven. I think that's what VII means. I believe so. Um, so they, yeah, this is kind of the beginning after they leave. Um, right into it, they just get into absolute debauchery. Uh, this is where you know that they're not your uh, 
how do I say this? Um, it's it's going to be ironic, but uh, they're not your noble band of scalp hunters, if there is such a thing. Um, these guys are just truly bad people, and it, it turns that way really quick. Uh, I think this is the first kill that they make, actually. Um, it's not even an Indian. It's an old Mexican woman. Um, I'll go ahead and read this for you. Uh, in the square of... Oh, in the square, two of the Delawares and the outsider, uh, outrider Webster were squatting in the dust with a weathered old woman like color of pipe clay. The color of pipe clay. Dry old crone, half-naked, her paps like wrinkled aubergines, sorry, aubergines <laughs> hanging from under the shawl she wore. She stared at the ground. Uh, she stared at the ground. Nor did she look up, even when the horses stood all about her. Glanton looked down the square. The town appeared empty. There was a small company of soldiers garrisoned here, but they did not turn out. Dust was blowing through the streets. His horse leaned and sniffed at the old woman and jerked its head and trembled. And Glanton patted, patted the animal's neck and dismounted. She was in a meat. Ca- uh, she was in a meat camp about eight mile up the river, said Webster. She can't walk. How many were there? We reckon maybe 15 or 20. They didn't have no stock to amount to anything. I don't know what she was doing there. Glanton crossed in front of his horse, passing the reins behind his back. Watch her cap. She bites. She had raised her eyes to the level of his knees. Glanton pushed the horse back and took one of the heavy saddle pistols from its scabbard and cocked it. Watch yourself there. Several of the men stepped back. The old woman looked up. Neither courage nor heart sink in those old eyes. He pointed with his left hand, and she turned to follow his hand with her gaze, and he put the pistol to this uh, he put the pistol to her head and fired. The explosion filled all that sad little park. Some of the horses shied and stepped. A fist-sized hole erupted out of the far side of the woman's head in a great vomit of gore, and she pitched over and lay slain in her blood without remedy. Glanton had already put the pistol at half cock, and he flicked away the spent primer with his thumb and was preparing to recharge the cylinder. McGill, he said. A McGill, uh, a Mexican, solitary of his race in that company, came forward. Get the receipt for us. He took a skinning knife from his belt and stepped to where the old woman lay and took up her hair and twisted it about her wrist and passed the blade of the knife about her skull and ripped away the scalp. Glanton looked at the men. There were, there were stood some looking down at the old woman, some already seeing to their mounts or their equipage. Only the recruits were watching Glanton. He seated a pistol ball in the mouth of the chamber, and then he raised his eyes and looked across the square. The juggler and his family stood aligned like whiteness, like witnesses, and beyond them, in the long mud facade faces they had been watching from the doors, the naked windows dropped away like puppets in a gallery before the slow sweep of his eyes. He levered the ball home and capped it, the piece and capped the piece, and spun the heavy pistol in his hand, and returned it to the scabbard at the horse's shoulder, and took dripping and took the dripping trophy from McGill, and turned it in the sun, the way a man might qualify the pelt of an animal, and then, and then he handed it back, and took up the trailing reins, and led his horse out through the square toward the water at the ford. Uh, yeah, bad stuff. Um, basically, they just killed this innocent Mexican woman for the scalp. Um, so you already know that these guys are uh, not the best of humans um, after they fall in with the scalp hunters, and it's pretty significant. Uh, they're going to do this quite often. They're going to find innocent Mexicans that they're not supposed to be scalping, and because uh, the scalps can't really tell the difference, they're going to try to pass them off as Apache scalps. That's what they're doing here. Um, it sucks. It really does. And 
kind of makes you uneasy. Um, for me, it did. Uh, now, John Sepich mentions in here that the kid um, provokes this, and I, d- I don't know how. The kid's not even here. So if you did get notes on Blood Meridian and you found that, uh, this is why I came looking for this, is that he said that the kid provokes this. And I don't I don't know how. Maybe I'm just a silly goose, but um, I don't know how the kid has anything to do with this. He's nowhere in the passage. So take that for what you will. I don't know what Sepich is saying there. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, it's... Uh, not good not good so next thing that we've got here is going to be take a look at my notes oh okay um let's see go right here uh so something that you're gonna find this this i was about to say this movie um we just talked about how it wasn't a movie i don't know why i'm thinking the word movie this book uh one of the main characters uh, I don't know if it's the main character. I don't know if this book has a main character other than maybe the kid. But even then, there's an argument that he's not the main character. Um, the judge. You're going to be following the judge around. And this section is the judge's section. This is not the kid's section. This is the judge's section. And that's one of the arguments that the kid isn't the main character, that it's the judge. Uh, is because look at all this, pa- all these pages that he has devoted strictly to the judge. And... The idea is that McCarthy uses this narrative about the judge, um, or uses the kid, you know, following the kid through the book to create this narrative about the judge. It's kind of odd. Um, if you don't know anything about literature, uh, kind of like I don't, uh, it seems kind of unique. The The main character isn't the one that we're following through, um, that we're following through the book. And again, I don't know that the judge is the main character, but there's some pretty compelling arguments that it's not the kid. So... Uh, but you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about the judge uh, in this book and in this section in particular. Um, <laughs> the main question of this book, I guess, is what is the judge and what is his relation to the kid? What is the judge? Is he just a man? There's a lot of arguments to be made that he's not just a man. He's some sort of demigod. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what to make of it, and I'll lay out a few things to. Actually, I do kind of know what to make of it. I have my thoughts. Uh, I'll lay out a few things to um, kind of support that. Um, but basically, one of the ideas that helps us get an idea, or one of the, one of the themes that helps us get an idea of who the judge really is, is that he um, he's very interested in stone and this idea of of stone, this everlasting presence of stone that is so hard to erode away and that is always present in the earth. Um, one of the passages that shows the importance of, of stone and the idea of stone is they, uh, this passage right here on page 122, I'll find the chapter for you. Sorry. I forgot to get the chapters in my notes. Uh, it's gonna be chapter nine. So, and in chapter nine, page one twenty-two, if you have the modern library version, uh, basically, he comes in here, and uh, so it says they posted guards atop the Azatoib and unsaddled the horses and drove them out to graze. And the judge took one of the pack animals and emptied out the panniers and went off to explore the works. In the afternoon, he sat in the compound breaking ore samples with a hammer, the feldspar rich in red oxide of copper and native and native nuggets in whose organic libations he purported to read news of the earth's origins. Sorry. Um, 
holding an extemporary lecture in geology to the small gathering who nodded and spat. A few would quote him scripture to confound his ordering up on up of eons out of the ancient chaos and other apostate supposings. The judge smiled. Guys, I'm sorry. Uh, again, disclaimer, um, I can read really well in my head. I can't read really well outside. No matter how many times I try to read this out loud, uh, it's always just as bad. And I would do retakes for you, but I would be here for six hours. So um, I'm going to read that again and hopefully get it a little bit better. They posted guards atop the Azatoa and unsaddled the horses and drove them out to graze. And the judge took one of the pack animals and emptied out the panniers and went off to explore the works. In the afternoon, he sat in the compound, breaking ore samples with a hammer. The feldspar, rich in red oxide of copper, and native nuggets in whose organic lobations he purported to read the news of, Earth's, of the Earth's origins, holding an extemporary lecture in geology to a small gathering who nodded and spat. A few would quote him scripture to confound his ordering up of ordering up of eons out of the ancient chaos and other apostate supposings. The judge smiled. Books lie, he said. God don't lie. No, said the judge. He does not. And these are his words. He held up a chunk of rock. He speaks in stones and trees and the bones of things. Uh, kind of weird. Um, I didn't really know exactly what to make of that, but basically I think what he's trying to say here is that um, God is really found in the earth and in the stone and, and the things that um, we know to be true... Um, from what we can see in the earth. So I, I don't really know what that means. I don't know what it means to me. Um, it's just something to take note of. And, and again, this, this guy, this extremely smart, uh, some people again say that he's not a guy, this demigod of a character, this, this man that's apparently larger than life. Uh, one of his main passions is if you could call it a passion with a guy like this, um, is geology. He's extremely invested in the earth uh, and, and rocks and stones and, and things that live on past humans. Uh, and that's what he's saying is that that's what God is, is he speaks in stones and trees, the bones of things. That's the way he speaks, not in some silly book, I guess is what, what he's trying to say. Um, so next let's see. Ah, okay. So here is another, um, this is where we're going to start to see the case for what the judge actually is kind of develop. And I'll get to that after I kind of read this section. Um, bear with me, please. Uh, basically what's happening here and I won't read it all. Um, let's see. So basically this, uh, this guy Tobin that, that joins the, uh, the clan, I guess the, the band of, uh, scalp hunters, he's an ex priest. He's a former priest. Um, he and the kid kind of, I would say, get attached, I guess. Uh, the kid kind of attaches to him. And, you know, the kid is kind of torn between Tobin and the judge, I think, through most of the book. The kid is very weary of the judge um, and leans a little bit more towards Tobin. But also the kid does a lot of things that the judge does and uh, looks upon the judge with amazement, I think, a lot. Um, so let's see. Basically, it starts with uh, the ex-priest says he speaks Dutch. Dutch, I. The kid looked at the ex-priest. This is chapter 10. The kid looked at the ex-priest. He bent to his mending. He does, for I heard him do it. We cut a parcel of crazy pilgrims down off the Yano, and the old man in lead of them. He spoke right up in Dutch like we were all of us in Dutchland, and the judge gave him right back. 
Glanton come near falling off his horse. We none of us knew him to speak it. Asked where he'd learned it, and you know what he said? What did he say? Said off a Dutchman, the ex-priest said. I couldn't have learned it off ten Dutchmen. What about you? The kid shook his head. No. The gifts of the Almighty are weighed and parceled out in a scale peculiar to himself. It's no fair accountant, and I don't doubt but what he'd be the first to admit it. And you put the query to him boldface. Who? The Almighty. The Almighty. The ex-priest shook his head. He glanced across the fire towards the judge. That great hairless thing... You wouldn't think to look at him that he could outdance the devil himself, now would you? The God, God, the man, is a dancer. You'll not take that away from him. And fiddle. He's the greatest fiddler I ever heard. And that's and that's an end on it. The greatest. He can cut a trail, shoot a rifle, ride a horse, track a deer. He's been all over the world. Him and the governor, they sat up till breakfast, and it was Paris, this, and London, that, in five languages. You'd have given him something. You'd have given something to, to have heard him. The governor is a learned man himself, but the governor, sorry guys, the governor is a learned man himself he is, but the judge, the ex-priest shook his head, oh, it may be the Lord's way of showing how little store he sets up, he sets by the learned. Whatever could it mean to one who knows all? He's an uncommon love for the common man, and godly wisdom resides in the least of things, so that it may well be that the voice of the Almighty speaks most profoundly in such beings as lives in silence themselves. He watched the kid. For let it go how it will, he said. God speaks in the least of creatures. The kid thought to him the kid thought him to mean birds or things that crawl, but the ex priest watching, his head slightly cocked, said No man is give leave of that voice. The kid spat into the fire and bent to his work. I ain't heard no voice. When it stops, said Tobin, you'll know that you've heard it all your life. Is that right? Aye. The kid turned to the leather in his lap. The ex-priest watched him. At night, said Tobin, when the horses are grazing and the company is asleep, who hears them grazing? Don't nobody hear them if they're asleep. Aye. And if they cease their grazing, who is it that wakes? Every man. Aye, said the priest. Every man. The kid looked up. And the judge? Does the voice speak to him? The judge, said Tobin. He didn't answer. I seen him before, said the kid, in Nacogdoches. Tobin smiled. Every man in the company claims to have encountered that sooty-souled rascal in some other place. So, again, what is he saying here? I don't know. <laughs> Guys, I'm sorry. I don't have many answers for you, only questions. Um, which is, again, I guess the, the whole point of the book. But... Um, this quote, this passage here says, The gifts of the Almighty are weighed and parceled out in a scale peculiar to himself. It's no fair accountant, and I don't doubt but what he'd be the first to admit it. And you put the query to him boldface. Who? The Almighty. The Almighty. What I think he's saying here is that uh, the gifts that God gives um, are weighed out in a scale peculiar to even God, um, which I don't know, again... What that means. I think what he's saying here is that, uh, yeah, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to come up with something. Um, I don't know. What do you think it means, I guess? Ask a rhetorical question. Uh, the gifts of the Almighty are weighed and parceled out in a scale peculiar to himself. It's no fair accountant, and I don't doubt but what he'd be the first to admit it, and you put the query to him boldface. Bold face. Who? The Almighty. The Almighty. Um... Yeah. 
I'll leave that there because I don't have any answers for you. I just thought it was interesting. And I, I promise I've been looking for answers. And I guess that's, you're getting the, the point of the book in, in the episode <laughs> is that it's confusing. Um, what do you think it means? I don't know. I guess if I had to guess, it's just that um, the gifts that people get in life, their talents, uh, their skills, um, they're weighed out and measured in no particular order. Uh, not everybody, I guess, has the same amount of special things about them. Um, and what they, the priest is trying to say here is that uh, that's peculiar to God himself, um, why that happens. I don't know what that means. So the ex-priest shook his head. He said, oh, it may be the Lord's way of showing how little store he sets by the learned. Whatever could it mean to one who knows all? He's an uncommon love for the common man, and godly wisdom resides in the least of things, so that it may well be that the voice of the Almighty speaks most profoundly in such beings as lives in silence themselves. He watched the kid. For let it go how it will, God speaks in the least of creatures. No man is give leave of that voice. He says, I ain't heard no voice. When it stops... You'll know you've heard it all your life. Um, I guess basically what he's saying is that um, we're all given uh, this this undertone, this voice of God uh, that he speaks to the, the most simple of creatures. Maybe he's saying that um, at, at the simplest form, God is speaking to us until we... Uh, Maybe he's saying that until we learn all these worldly um, obsessions, kind of like what the judge does when he draws all the things and um, invests in geology and all these different languages and stuff like that, maybe what the ex-priest is saying here is that uh, that's maybe a distraction from what God is really wanting us to to do, um, which is maybe our nature. Maybe that's has some stoic ties to it. I don't know. I'm spitballing here. And again, I promise I've research this as many times as I can, but, um, the date that the episode was supposed to drop got here. Um, and I still didn't have an answer. So I think that that's kind of what I've been spitballing is just that, uh, yeah, what he's saying is that the voice of God is, is always there. And, and only when you lose it, um, do you really know that you ever had it? And one of the ways to lose it is just to fill your head with all these, um, worldly ideas, worldly ideas and obsessions. Uh, maybe that's why the, the judge is so, um, deprived, I guess, is because he is obsessed with things of this world. Maybe, um, he's made this world out to be a God and not the actual God. I think maybe, um, he said, um, let's see. I think, does he ask if he speaks to the judge? I don't think so. Oh yeah. So the, the kid looked up and the judge, does the voice speak to him? The judge said Tobin, he didn't answer. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> um, he doesn't tell him whether the voice speaks to him. And I think that answer is no. Um, I think Tobin doesn't want to say that because maybe that's some sort of damnation. Maybe, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So basically Tobin goes into, uh, this story about how the judge saved them. Uh, the Glant, the gang, the, the Glanton gang, uh, before they ran into the kid and toad vine, apparently we're going through the desert and they had run out of gunpowder, which, um, back in these days, these were muzzle loaders and with caps and stuff, cap and ball pistols. And, uh, they didn't have like 
rounds, as people call them, or ammunition. Uh, you had powder and balls and caps. Um, they had run out of powder, and they had a wild band of Apaches. I say wild, just a, a brutal band of Apaches on their tail. Um, a lot of them that were going to completely decimate the men. They said that they only had 38 men at this time. Um, <laughs> he said that they walked up, and uh, the judge was just sitting on the rock. Um, he says, we'd been on the plane all night and well up into the next day, the Delawares kept calling halts and dropping to the ground to give a listen. There was no place to run, no place to hide. I didn't know what they wanted to hear. We knew the bloody niggers was out there and speaking for myself, that was already an abundance of information. I didn't need more. The sunrise we'd looked to be the sunrise. We'd looked to be our last. We were all watch. We were all watching the backtrack. I don't know how far you could see, 15, 20 miles. Then about the meridian of the day, we come upon the judge on his rock there in that wilderness by his single self. I and there was no rock, just the one. Irving said he brung it with him. <laughs> yeah, so what he's saying is there there was no rocks there. Uh, they're on this flat plain, and the judge is sitting on the only rock that exists on this plane, and they're just riding up to him. Um, Irving said he brought it with him. I said it was a meteor, a mere stone for to mark him out of the northing, northing at all. Sorry, Irving said he'd bring it with him. I said that it was a mere stone for to mark him out of the northing at all. He had with him that self same rifle you see with him now, all mounted in German silver, and the name that he'd give it set with silver wire under the cheek piece in satin in Latin, et in Arcadia ego, a reference to the lethal in it. So basically, um, et in Arcadia ego draws back to, I think, uh, a painting. Um, and what I translated that as is that even in paradise, there are, there I am. Um, and he says a reference to the lethal in it. So basically he, he named his gun death, uh, that even in paradise, there is death is kind of the idea of that. Um, and the judge carries death with him, which Again, I'll make the case of who I think that the judge is here in a sec. But, uh, so, as, apart from my shitty reading out loud, uh, yeah, they just wander up on the judge, and he's just there um, by some divine power, I guess. Uh, maybe divine's not the right word, by some miracle. Uh, he's just sitting there on the only rock in this whole plane. Um, so, basically, they're out of powder, and him and Glanton... Um, him and Glanton come together. Let's see if I, uh, yeah. So him and Glanton come together and talk a little bit. And the judge apparently says that he can help them. Um, they start to go and they start to collect different things that are needed to make gunpowder. Again, the, the judge is an expert in geology. So you can make gunpowder with different things. And I think it's, uh, I'm going to forget it. And I had it in my notes earlier too. It's going to be like the ashes, um, or charcoal, uh, then you've got the, uh, what are they, is it the, the nitrite out of, uh, nitrate out of the bat guano. They go and get a bunch of bat guano and, uh, filter it out through, uh, ash. So wood ash and then sulfur, um, they get sulfur and those, that's what you need to make gunpowder apparently. Um, so basically, uh, you'll see in here that Glenn, uh, Tobin recalls, um, Glanton and the judge is making a covenant that uh, Glanton basically for gunpowder has sold his soul 
to the judge. And this is where, if you're getting the hints, this is where I think what the judge really is. I think the judge is a stand-in um, for the devil. Uh, I think the, the more that I read and the more that I look into this, I think that that's kind of the case, is that the judge is the, the stand-in for the devil. Um, truly cruel, truly cunning. Um, he is all of the things of this world. Uh, knows a lot about the earth and, and rocks. And um, you see earlier, let's see... Uh, Tobin says God the man is a dancer you'll not take that away from him and fiddle he's the greatest fiddler I ever heard and that's an end on it the greatest um, so I, I think the devil is known in past stories now, this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous but again I'm not very learned so um, you know Charlie Daniels selling his soul to the devil um, you know cutting a fiddle tune um, not Charlie Daniels what am I what am I trying to say um yeah, the devil coming up and uh, challenging um, Johnny to the fiddle. And the devil is a really good fiddler. So, uh, And dancing. Uh, a lot of times, the devil dances. So, uh, again, I have nothing to back this up. But it's just kind of my, my historical, not historical, cultural knowledge of what the devil is. Uh, the judge really seems to be the devil. Uh, there's another area in here. Let's see. Okay, so uh, they go up to a volcano um, to get the sulfur. Apparently, there's sulfur at the mouth of some of these volcanoes, and that's backed up with history. That's found in Notes on Blood Meridian by John Seppich. Um, and and so uh, John Seppich, just to be clear with, with uh, where I get this notion that the judge is the devil, uh, John Seppich actually makes that case as well. I'm just kind of backing it up with what I've seen. Uh, so basically... Um, they come up on these, uh, they come up on these, um, they, I think it's the pronounced Malpais, um, basically lava rocks, badlands. It's all the lava that are outside the mouth of a devil or no, of a devil of, of a volcano. Um, and they find, uh, they find the sulfur that they need and they're, they're in a bad way. These Apaches are gaining ground on them. Uh, they're going to just absolutely slaughter the gang if they get there and they don't have any, uh, any gunpowder um let's see okay oh one of the things that uh let's see let's see not take his eyes off the dead where it rose um okay so uh on page 137 this is going to be chapter 10 still um, he says, the savage is not 10 miles out. I looked at the men about me and sure they didn't look much. The dignity was gone out of them. They were good hearts all then and now. And I did not like to see them. So, and I thought the judge had been sent among us for a curse. And yet he proved me wrong at the time he did. I'm of two minds now. So this is just kind of saying that, um, oh, I'm of two minds again. Now, basically this is saying that Tobin, um, immediately caught the judge as being a curse to the gang. Uh, immediately saw him for what he for what he is, which I think is the devil, um, and that he eventually, like, eventually after this uh, this scenario, uh, he was like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the judge is decent, but uh, he says I'm of two minds again now. So it's pretty obvious that Tobin and uh, and the judge are at odds with one another. Um, so. Um, Here's another pretty obvious, once this kind of clicks for you, here's another pretty obvious, uh, 
I guess, notion to the fact that the judge is the devil. Um, he says, we were half mad anyways, all lined up, Delawares and all. Every uh, oh, oh, okay, okay. So he says, I didn't know, but we'd be required to bleed into it like Freemasons, but it was not so. He worked it up with dry hands and all the while savages down there on the plane drawing nigh to us. And when I turned back, the judge was standing, the great hairless oaf, and he took out his pizzle, and he was pissing into the mixture, pissing, pissing with a great vengeance. And one hand aloft, he cried out for us to do likewise. We were half mad anyways, all lined up, Delawares and all. Every man save Glanton, and he was a study. We hauled forth our members, and it, and at it we went. And the judge on his knees, kneading the mass with his naked arms, and the piss was splashing about, and he was crying out for us to piss, man. Piss for your very souls, for can't you see the redskins yonder? And laughing the while, and working up this great mass in a foul black dough, a devil's batter. By the stink of it, and him not a bloody dark pastry man himself. I don't suppose that he pulls out his knife. I don't suppose that he pulls out his knife and commences to trowel it across the south facing rocks, spreading it out thin with the knife blade, and watching the sun with one eye, and him smeared with blacking and reeking of piss and sulphur and grinning, and wielding the knife with a dexterity that was wondrous, like he did it every day of his life. And when he was done, he sat back and wiped his hands on his chest, and then he watched the savages, and so did we all. So basically, to make this gunpowder, you've got to mix it all. Uh, it's got to be a wet mixture, and then it's got to dry out. So they don't have any water, um, not enough to spare for that. So he makes all the guys piss in the in this uh, this powder that he creates from the uh, the bat guano, and then the uh, the dried bat guano not dried filtered i don't know how it actually works um the filtered bat guano whatever you needed from the bat guano uh the charcoal and then the uh um the sulfur and he makes this uh what he calls a devil's batter and by so a devil's batter by the stink of it and him not a bloody bloody dark pastryman himself um that's kind of just uh a little bit of support for the judge being this this representation of the devil making the devil's batter which is what a lot of people call gunpowder so um anyway that's just something to think about so later on in i believe that same chapter no it's going to be chapter 11 just a good little note chapter 11 uh, one thing that they said is they'd learn war by warring um, they're talking about uh, the gang that they'd learnt war by warring. I thought it was just a good little, uh, it's kind of a cool little passage there. I just caught that on while I'm turning to the next passage. So, um, basically, um, let's see. So, the judge likes to draw things. Um, he likes to draw things. He likes to document the things of this world, and that's where I was going back to Tobin saying that, um, you know, that God speaks that that God speaks in the least of things, and I think that um, men who are crazily obsessed with this world that we live in, uh, God ceases to speak to them. Uh, the judge loves to draw certain things, um, everything. He loves to take note of the world, and there's a certain passage in here where he says that. Um, that it should not be uh, permitted to live unless he gives it permission. He wants to know every single thing, and he wants to capture everything, and uh, almost as if he wants to put the whole world in a zoo controlled by him. Very, very narcissistic. Uh, but this this is a story. Um, this is a story that I thought was uh, of importance. So basically... Um, 
he's drawing uh this artifact it's a it's a little foot guard um from a suit of armor a long time ago he draws it and then once it's drawn once he knows about it uh once he can document it he crumples it up and throws it away which is kind of odd um so a tennessee man named webster had been watching him uh asked the judge what he aimed to do with those notes uh let's see he says oh uh well you've been a draftman somewheres and them pictures is like enough to the things himself but no man can put all the world in a book no mere than everything drawn in a book is so well said oh well said marcus spoke the judge but don't draw me said webster for i don't want in your book my book or some other book said the judge what is to be deviates not jot no jot from the book wherein it's writ how could it it would be a false book and a false book is no book at all you're a formidable riddler and i'll not match words with you only save my crusted mug from oh only save my crusted mud from out your ledger for i'd not have it shown about perhaps to strangers the judge smiled whether in my book or not every man is tabernacled in every other and he is in exchange and so on in an endless complexity of being and witness to the uttermost edge of the world i'll stand for my own witness said webster so uh basically um webster doesn't like being doesn't want to be drawn by the judge and i don't know why maybe that's because he doesn't want to be you know noticed by the devil which i think is kind of funny um now that i think about that is that you know webster's webster maybe recognizes that um the devil takes stock of all these worldly objects and uh he just doesn't want to doesn't want to be noticed by the devil I, i don't know if that's correct but that's what i got from it anyway so um then it tells the story um oh he says until the judge raised his hand and called for amnesty and told him that webster's feelings were of a different kind and not motivated by vanity at all and that he once drawed an old hueco's portrait and unwittingly chained the man to his own likeness for he could not sleep for fear an enemy might take it and deface it and so like was the portrait that he would not suffer it cease nor anything to touch it and he made a journey across the desert with it to where he heard the judge was to be found and he begged his counsel on how he might preserve the thing and the judge said and the judge took him deep into the mountains and they buried the portrait in the floor of a cave where it lies yet for aught the judge knew when he was done telling this webster spat and wiped his mouth and eyed the judge again that man he said was no more than an ignorant heathen savage that's so said the judge it ain't like that with me excellent said the judge reaching for his portman portmanteau you have no objection to a sketch then i'll sit for no portrait but it ain't like he said the company fell silent someone rose to stoke the fire and the noon ascended and grew small over the ruined dwellings and the little stream braided over the sands and the valley floor shone like woven metal and save for the sound it made for there was no sound other what kind of indians has has these here been judge the judge looked up dead ones i say what about you judge not so dead said the judge they was passable masons i'd say these niggers hereabouts ain't now ain't no kind not so dead says the judge then he told him another story and it was this story in the western country of the sorry i'll get i'll sorry of the algenes some years ago when it was yet a wilderness there was a man who kept a harness shop by by the side of the federal road he did so because it was his trade and yet he did little of it 
love, yet he did little of it for there were few travelers in that place. So basically what he's saying is that, um, there was a harness shop by the side of the interstate. Um, he did so because he knew how to make harnesses and yet he did little of it for there were few travelers in that place. So that he fell into the habit before long of dressing himself as an Indian and taking up station a few miles above his shop and waiting there was waiting there by the roadside to ask whoever should come that way if they would give him money. At this time, he had done no person any injury. So basically what he's saying here, uh, for lack of my ability to fucking read, um, is that this guy has a harness shop down the road from the interstate, uh, maybe on like a little farm to market, and there's no travelers on that road, so he can't make anybody any harnesses, so he takes to begging. Um, there's no harnesses to be made, so he goes up to the road, dresses like an Indian, um, and begs for money. People think that he's a poor Indian, so they give him money. He says, one day a certain man came by and the harness maker in his beads and feathers stepped from behind his tree and asked this certain man for some coins. He was a young man and refused and having recognized the harness maker for a white man, spoke to him in a way that he, that made the harness maker ashamed so that he'd invited the young man to come to his dwelling a few miles distant on the road. The harness maker lived in a bark house he had built and he kept a wife and two children, all of whom reckoned the old man mad and were only waiting for some chance to escape him. The wild place escape him and the wild place he'd brought them to. They therefore welcomed the guest and the woman gave him his supper. But while he ate, the old man began to try to wheedle money from him. And he said that they were poor as indeed they were. And, and the traveler listened to him and then he took out two coins, which like the old coin, two coins, which like the old man had never seen. And the old man took the coins and studied them and showed them to his son. And the stranger finished his meal and said to the old man that he might have those coins. But ingratitude is more common than you think, and the harness maker wasn't satisfied, and he began to question whether he ought not perhaps to have another such coin for his wife. The traveler pushed back his plate and turned in his chair and gave the old man a lecture, and in this lecture the old man heard things he had once known but forgotten, and he heard some new things to go with them. The traveler concluded by telling the old man that he was at a loss to God or that he was a loss to God and man alike and man alike and would remain so until he took his brother into his heart as he would take himself in and he come upon his own person in want in some desert place in the world. Now, as he was concluding his speech, there passed in the road a nigger drawing a funeral hearse for one, his own kind, and it was painted pink, and the nigger was dressed in clothes of every color like a carnival clown, and the young man pointed out this nigger passing in the road, and he said that even a black nigger, here the judge paused, he had been looking into the fire, and he raised his head and looked around him, his narration was much in the manner of a recital, he had not lost the thread of his tail. He smiled. <laughs> he smiled at the listeners about, said that even a crazy black nigger was not less than a man among men. And then old men, and then the old man's son stood up and began an oration himself, pointed out the road and calling for a place to be made for the nigger. He used the he used those words that a place be made. Of course, by this time the nigger and hearse had passed on from sight. With this, the old man repented all over again and swore that the boar was right. And the old woman who was seated by the fire was amazed at all she heard. At all she heard, and when the guest announced that the time had come for his departure, she had tears in her eyes. And the little girl came out from behind the bed and clung to his clothes. The old man offered to walk him to the road so as to see him off on his journey and to apprise him of which fork in the road to take. 
and which for and which not for there was scarcely any way signs in that part of the world as they walked out they spoke in life they spoke of life in such wild place where such people you saw you saw but once and never again and by and by they came to the fork in the road and here the traveler told the old man that he had come with him far enough and he thanked him and they took their departure of each other and the stranger went on by his way went on his way but the harness maker seemed unable able to suffer the loss of his company and he called to him and went with him again a little way upon the road and by and by they came to a place where the road was darkened in a deep wood and in this place the old man killed the traveler he killed him with a rock and he took his clothes and he took his watch and his money and he buried him in a shallow grave by the side of the road then he went home on the way he tore his clothes and bloodied himself with a flint and he told his wife that they had been set upon by robbers and the young traveler murdered and only him escaped she began to cry and after a while she made him take her to the place and she took wild primrose and grew it in plenty thereabout and she put it on the stones she came there many times until she was old the harness maker lived until his son was grown and never did anyone harm again as he lay dying he called the son to him and told him what he had done and the son said that he forgave him if it was his to do and the old man said that it was his to do so and then he died it was to hit it was his to do so and then he died but the boy was not sorry for he was jealous of the dead man and before he went away he visited that place and cast away the rocks and dug up the bones and scattered them in the forest and then he went away he went away to the west and he himself became a killer of men the old woman was still living at the time and she knew none of what had passed and she thought that the wild animals had dug up the bones and scattered them perhaps she did not find all the bones but as she did she restored the, to the grave and she covered them up and piled the stones over them and carried flowers to the places before when she was an old woman she told people that it was her son buried there and perhaps by that time it was so here the judge looked up and smiled there was a silence then all began to shout at once with every kind of disclaimer he was no harness maker he was a shoemaker and he was clear to them charges called one and another he never lived in no wilderness place he had a shop in the dead center of cumberland maryland they never knew where them bones come from the old woman was crazy known to be so that was my brother in that casket and he was a minstrel dancer out of cincinnati ohio who was shot to death over a woman and all other protests until the judge raised both his hands for silence wait now he said for there is a rider to the tale there was a young bride waiting for that traveler traveler with whose bones we are acquainted and she bore a child in her womb and she bore a child in her womb that was the traveler's son now this son whose father whose father's existence in the world is historical and speculative even before the son has entered it is in a bad way all his life he carries with him he carries before him the idol of a perfect of a perfection sorry i'm going to start over now this son whose father's existence in the world is historical and speculative even before the son has entered it is in a bad way all his life he carries before him the idol of a perfection to which he can never attain the father dead has euchred the son out of his patrimony for it is the death of the father to which the son is entitled and to which he is heir more so than his goods he will not hear of the small mean ways that tempered the man in life he will not see him struggling in in follies of his own devising no the world which he inherits bears him uh, bears him false witness he is broken before a frozen god and he will never find his way what is true of one man said the judge is true of many the people who 
who once lived here are called the Anasazi, the old ones. They quit these parts, routed by drought or disease or by wandering bands of marauders, quit these parts ages since, and of them there is no memory. They are rumors and ghosts to this land, and they are much revered. The tools, the art, the building, these things stand in judgment on the latter races, yet there is nothing for them to grapple with. The old ones are gone like phantoms, and the savages wander these canyons to the sound of an ancient laughter. In their crude huts, they crouch in darkness and listen to the fear seeping out of the rock. All progressions from a higher to lower order are marked by ruins and mystery and residue of nameless rage. So, here are the dead fathers. Their spirit is entombed in the stone. It lies upon the land with the same weight and same ubiquity. For whoever makes a shelter of reeds and hides has joined his spirit to the common destiny of creatures, and he will subside back to the primal mud with a scarcely with scarcely a cry. But who builds in stone seeks to alter the structure of the universe, and so it was with these masons how primitive their works may seem to us. No one spoke. The judge sat half-naked and sweating for all the night was cool. At, le- at length the ex-priest Tobin looked up. It strikes me, he said that either son is equal in the way of disadvantage. So what is the way of raising a child? At a young age, said the judge, they should be put in a pit with wild dogs. They should be set to puzzle out from their proper clues the one of three doors that does not harbor wild lions. They should be made to run naked in the desert until, hold now, says Hoban. The question was put in all earnestness. And the answer, says the judge, If God meant to intervene in the degeneracy of mankind, would he not have done so by now? Wolves call themselves man. What other creature could? And is the race of man not more predacious yet? The way of the world is to bloom and to flower and die. But in the affairs of men, there is no waning in the noon of his expression signals the onset of night. His spirit is exhausted at the peak of its achievement. His meridian is at once his darkening and the evening of his day. He loves game. Let him. He loves games. Let him play for stakes. This you you see. This you see here. These ruins wandered by tribes of savages. Do you not think that they that this will be again? I and again with other people with other sons. The judge looked about him. He was sat before the fire, naked save for his breeches, and his hands rested palm down upon his knees. His eyes were empty slots. None among the company harbored any notion as to what the, this attitude implied. Yet, so like an icon, he was sitting. Yet, so like an icon, he was in his sitting that they grew cautious and spoke with circumspection among themselves, as if they would not waken something that had been left sleeping. That had that had better been left sleeping. Sorry, guys. I know it's rough. I'm trying to get through it. So. This tale, um, this story is significant, and I think you'll find later that it is significant, but basically um, what he's saying is that um, the guy that kills the traveler, the the guy basically begs for money. He's, he's kind of a piece of shit, begging people for money on the side of the road. Uh, the traveler gives him somewhat of a divine uh counseling i guess literally a come to jesus meeting as you will um and the woman loves it the woman is an absolute all uh the traveler thinks that he loves it but 
uh, really can't handle it at the end. He can't handle being told um, how bad of a person he is for begging for more money, even after the traveler tries to give him two pieces. Uh, the son um, sees that the traveler is good, uh, sees that you know the traveler has done something good in their house. Uh, basically, the traveler makes the case that um, the black dude pulling a hearse down the road uh, that even though, um, let's see, let's go back before I really mess this up. Let's see. Um, yeah, basically what he's saying is that, um, yeah. Uh, oh, so basically the traveler traveler concluded, uh, by telling the old man that he was a loss to God and man alike and would remain so until he took his brother in, into his heart as he would take himself in and he would come upon his own person and want in some desert place in the world. So, desert place, uh, desert place. Um, basically, he's saying that um, he's going to be a loss to man and mankind uh, until he learns to take his brother in his own heart. Uh, take his brother into his heart as he would take himself so to treat everybody um love love one another as if you love yourself uh and love god is basically what he's saying and he takes and he says you know look at that black guy which everybody obviously um is not a fan of in this period of time and the harness maker would be so uh would be not a fan himself um he says that uh yeah, he said that even a crazy black nigger was not less than a man among men. And then the old man's son stood up and began an oration himself, pointing out at the road and calling for a place to be made for the nigger. He used those words, that a place be made. So, basically, he's already convinced the son that, that this is what is correct. You know, against, basically against, this dude is, this, this dad is being humbled in front of his son. And I think there's some significance in that, that, uh, this this dad um, has failed significantly, and it's taken him this long to be humbled. And the the son is standing up and saying, "No, this traveler is right. Um, we must take this man in. We need to make a place for uh, this crazy black dude walking down the road with a hearse." Um, uh, then you know the two two dudes walk out into the road. They're going to uh, see the traveler off, and the old guy kills him. Um, why the old guy kills him? I don't know. Um, basically I think the old guy kills him just because he couldn't, couldn't stand, uh, being humbled in front of his son. Uh, I, I, I think that's it. I don't know. Um, I really wish I had more for you. Um, and, but basically he tells his son finally, um, what he had done to the traveler, this person that the wife and the son, uh, looked up to, you know, not really looked up to, but, um, believed in when he left these the, they were um big fans i guess uh by the time that he had left and they really looked up to him and he killed him and he finally tells his son that and the son says that you know he forgives him if it was the son's place to do and i think that uh the father said so that it was the son's place to do i don't know why uh that the, it's the son's place to forgive the father um i don't know why um, there may be something in there that maybe the son is the ultimate critic of the father. Maybe, I don't know, um, that, you know, sons maybe consistently look up to their dads and, 
and see the good and and ultimately the bad maybe maybe the sons are um the ultimate uh critics of their fathers because they want to be like them and better maybe i don't know um let's see uh oh and then it says but the boy was not sorry for he was jealous of the dead man and before he went away he visited that place and cast away the rocks and dug up the bones and scattered them in the forest and then he went away he went away to the west and he himself became a killer of men this may be a story of an absent father um i don't know how much uh um i don't know how much evidence there is of that other than the father just being a general piece of shit uh but maybe that the boy hated the traveler because uh the father at least cared enough to kill the traveler um i'm thinking that maybe this father didn't care very much about his son um I don't know that I have anything to support that, but that's kind of what I'm feeling. And I think that this whole tale, this whole story, uh, kind of gives the idea that, um, I don't know. What does it do? I'm trying to think guys, I I've thought about this shit for months, uh, and it still just doesn't come to me. This book is so confusing. Um, but I think it's good. I think it makes us ask the hard questions, uh, which is why I'm reviewing it. Um, I think basically it's kind of telling the story that, um, an absent father and one that is just completely dead, uh, might as well be the same thing. So this, this kid, uh, that loved the traveler, um, eventually goes and tears up his bones because the father killed him and he goes out West and becomes a killer of men just like the father. So, um, a bad father created a killer of men. And then you see the traveler actually had a son uh, being born. And this kid never knew his father. His father was what everybody knows to be a hero among men, a good father, but he just wasn't there. He was dead. Um, And basically what he's saying here is that the son was robbed of his ability to see that even the greatest among us are human because the greatest among him was his father, uh, this, this guy that, uh, apparently everybody knew, everybody loved, um, this hero, uh, and he never got to see that his hero had faults. And so he could never live up to live up to what had preceded him. Um, one thing that this passage really made me understand is I guess, um, and now I know my dad listens to this, so maybe rather awkward, but I, I guess I'm grateful to see, uh, all of my father's faults and see the areas of which that I can be, um, better in certain ways that I don't have this golden idol of which that I I can't ever obtain. Um, you know, if my dad had died, God forbid it, uh, before I ever grew up, um, my dad is known as a good man. My dad is a very good man. Uh, a lot of people know him as such. Um, there would probably be this, uh, memory of him that I could never live up to. Um, and it would be very hard for anybody else to tell me that he isn't, you know, the ultimate, uh, human, you know? And so, what he's saying here is, I guess, to be be grateful for the facts that you can see. Be, be grateful for the fact that you can see your father's faults. Um, and fathers, you know, be upfront with your children about your faults. Let your children know that you have faults. 
uh, let your children know that uh, even great men be a great man and let your children know that even great men have faults so that they have something that they are that they can try to attain because if you give them a completely unattainable image um, well, the idea is that the kid of the traveler also becomes a killer of men and you'll see that kind of later in the uh, later in the book but so and it says for it is the death of the father to which the son is entitled and to which he is heir more so than his goods he will not hear of the small mean ways that tempered the man in life he will not see him struggling in the follies of his own devising no the world of which he inherits bears him false witness. He is broken before a frozen, frozen God, and he will never find his way. Um, so, guys out there, uh, I guess look at it. Look at it a couple ways. Um, if you don't have how do I, the one thing that this doesn't really answer for me is people who don't just don't have a dad, and that maybe know he wasn't quite exactly a good one he didn't die doing something heroic or whatever he didn't die uh, with this great legacy um i don't really know what this says for people like that other than the fact of uh you know at least your father wasn't a killer of men maybe your father is a killer of men but um do with this what you will for me like i said it makes me reflect on the fact that i'm grateful that um i have a role model with faults i guess a role model that showed me his faults and that i can uh i can aspire not to have you know, those same faults. I'll have faults on my own. This is not to say that, um, sons don't have their own faults. They will. Uh, but I'll be sure to share my faults like my dad did with me, with my son and not just give them some, some idol that they can never, that they can never live up to, never be good enough for. Um, so, and he, he, he rolls this into a, a generational, a generational type speech saying that um, civilizations are like this. Uh, civiliz civilizations have great fathers that um, as history erodes away, the bad things of these civilizations, only the, you know, the good and the, the noble things are left um, from these civilizations. And it's something that nobody can ever live up to. Uh, I think that that I'm going to get canceled on this, but I think that that may be kind of the case for um, some of the actual, Indian Native American population uh, that you find in 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 the U.S. here, um, and maybe well I don't <laughs> we're getting into some hairy situations here, um, but it, you know we put them on a pedestal of, of these you know loving sharing people that uh, were just killed by the white man and just absolutely completely slaughtered. Uh, it was a bloodbath all the way around, and um, the the reservations aren't doing too hot. Um, and these cultures that, uh, put their ancestors completely on pedestals and, and kind of ignore that they have faults, uh, end up losing their way a lot of times because, uh, it's something that they can never obtain. They can never blaze a new path because they're so wrapped up in, uh, in the greatness of their ancestors that maybe never was. I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's anything worth listening to, uh, but you're getting what you pay for on the purpose podcast with that. Uh, which is not shit. So, <laughs> um, but that's just kind of the idea. And that's kind of what he's saying here is that, uh, these new Indians that are roaming these parts, uh, they live in, in mud and straw huts and that's where they'll return. They'll never leave a legacy. Um, because the fathers before them were so great and massive. They can't, the Anasazi that built in stone that of things that will last, uh, they can't live up to that. Um, you know, another thing is like Rome, maybe, um, these civil, great civilizations that, uh, we're trying to aspire to be, 
uh, because we never recognize their faults. We'll never get there. So just some thought for you. Just some thought. Next, we're going to go to, let's see. Oh, okay. Um, we've talked about what we think the judge is, or what I think the judge is, at least. Um, are you going to take a drink? We talked about what I think the judge is. I think the judge is a representation of the devil, if not the devil himself. What do we think the kid is? Um, this is something that I don't know is in John Sippich's book, uh, Notes on Blood Meridian. This is something that I came up with myself. Um, I think Tobin, uh, this is going to be a hard stretch because God doesn't, well, I don't know, maybe God does scalp and destroy people that don't believe in him. But uh, I think that Tobin is some sort of representation for uh, the good in this world and that even the good has flaws. I don't, I don't know what that means, but the, the idea that I'm drawing in my head, uh, is that the kid, the kid is all of us. The kid is, is humanity. The kid is the average person. This is why he doesn't have a name. He's just the kid because he is every person. He's every man. And he's drawn between these two figures, uh, the devil and what I would say is, is kind of the Lord or, or Jesus in the ex priest. Um, now again, I can't I can't square the circle of how the Lord in this story uh, is out there scalping and killing Indians. I, I don't I don't and Mexicans. I don't I don't know. I can't square that circle. So don't ask me to. I don't I don't know what that means. Um, but that's just kind of the the narrative not narrative but the the structure. <clears throat> sorry, that I'm drawing in my head is that the kid is torn in this battle of uh, of the judge and. Um, the Lord, which is the ex-priest, his, his, his kind of conscience that is constantly uh, the, the opposition of the devil, um, even though they're both doing some pretty bad shit. And again, I can't square that circle, so don't ask me to. Um, that's just what I'm thinking. So one, uh, and, and the general idea is that the kid never really falls in with the gang. The kid's never really part of the gang. The kid never really gives up um, some sort of level of innocence or kindness or goodness about him um that he's always had some sort of sympathy for the indians and the mexicans that these guys are out here killing uh and this is just a little bit of a narrative <coughs> uh, to support that that the kid has a lot more sympathy than anybody else in the gang so uh they just dust up with a, a village and they get kind of shot up uh, this guy named Brown, David Brown, who's a pretty important character, doesn't really matter to the, um, I guess he does matter to the whole of the book, but um, not enough for me to extensively cover him. He says, boys, oh, um, David Brown went among these hazard, haggard butchers as they crouched before the flames, but he could find him no surgeon. He carried an arrow in his thigh, fletching and all, and none would touch it. Least of all would Doc Irving for Brown called him a mortician and a barber, and they kept their distance one from another, one from the other. Boys, said Brown, I'd doctorify it myself, but I can't get no straight grip. The judge looked up at him and smiled. Will you hold her holding? No, Davy, I won't. But I tell you what I will do. What's that? He said, I'll write a policy on your life against every mishap, save the noose. <laughs> Damn you then. The judge chuckled. Brown glared at him. Will none of you help a man? No one spoke. Damn all of you, then. He sat and stretched his leg out on the ground and looked at it. He bloodier than most. He gripped the shaft and bore down on it. The sweat stood on his forehead. He held his leg and swore softly. Some watched. Some did not. 
The kid rose. I'll try her, he said. Good lad, said Brown. He fetched his saddle to lean against. He turned his leg to the fire for the light, and he folded his belt and held it and hissed down at the boy kneeling there. Gripper stout, lad, and driver straight. Then he gripped the belt in his teeth and laid back. The kid took hold of the shaft close to the man's thigh and pressed forward with his weight. Brown seized on seized the ground on either side of him, and his head flew back and his wet teeth shone in the firelight. The kid took a new grip and bore down again. The veins in the man's neck stood like ropes, and he cursed the boy's soul. On the fourth essay, the point of the arrow came through. Yeah, on the fourth essay, um, the f- the arrow came through the flesh of the man's thigh, and the blood ran all over the ground. The kid sat back on his heels and passed the sleeve of his shirt across his brow. Brown let the ball, the belt fall from his teeth. Is it through, he said. It is. The point. Is the point. Speak up, man. The kid drew his knife and cut away the bloody point deftly and handed it up. Brown held it in the firelight and smiled. The point was of hammered copper and it was cocked in his blood. Coked, cocked in his blood, soaked bindings in the shaft, but it had held out lad you'll make a shade tree sawbones yet now draw her the kid withdrew the shaft from the legs man from the man's legs smoothly and the man bowed on the ground in a lurid female motion and wheezed raggedly through his teeth he lay there a moment and then he sat up and took the shaft from the kid and threw it in the fire and rose and went off to make his bed when the kid returned to his own blanket the ex-priest leaned to him and hissed in his ear fool god you god will not love ye forever the kid turned to look at him. Do you know that he'd have took you with him? He'd have took you, boy, like a bride to the altar. So basically, um, he's saying that once the kid entered <laughs> this uh, this agreement to uh, get the arrow out of Brown's leg, uh, the ex-priest is saying that, uh, dude, if you'd have fucked that up, uh, he would have killed you. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like death do us part. You entered into a marriage when you, <laughs> when you, uh, took that arrow, you know, took the agreement to, to push that arrow through. And, uh, and if you'd have failed, uh, Brown definitely would have killed you. He would have taken you, um, till death do you and Brown part, but he succeeded. Um, and this just goes to show that the, the level of, I guess, empathy that the, the kid has sympathy, empathy, um, that he's willing to uh, to take on that level of risk to help um, to help a fellow man. Uh, he couldn't sit there and just watch the dude, you know, die from an arrow wound or struggle with the arrow wound. He went and helped him, you know, knowing the risk. Um, just a little uh, excerpt from from what I think to be some evidence that the kid is is all of us toying with. Uh, with uh, good and evil. So let's see. Um, let's see. Basically, the judge finds this little kid, a little Apache boy, and a uh, little Apache boy plays with it for a little bit, and then uh, in the morning, um, in the morning, he kills it and scalps it. This uh, little little boy, Toad Vine, for what it's worth. Uh, says god damn you holden and puts a, a gun to d- the judge's head and uh he says you either shoot or take that away do it or now do it now um toad vine put the pistol in his belt uh, the judge smiled and wiped the scalp on the leg of his trousers and rose and turned away 
Another 10 minutes, they were on the plane uh, again in full flight from the Apaches. So uh, Toad Vine has a chance to kill him, and he doesn't. And this is uh, this is directly from, I think, uh, Moby Dick. Something in there about Moby Dick. I don't, I don't really know. Um, that's just what I heard, but that was right there. So anyway... Um, the the if we back up from all the i guess what you would call metaphysical i don't know um the density the spiritual density of the book and what it all means good and evil and whatnot if you back up from that uh basically just on the actual events of the glanton gang they end up because of all this uh this scalping of mexicans and um just being absolute assholes all over the country uh, they roll into this town and they just absolutely make a fool of themselves. They party hardy and, uh, really, really annoy the shit, um, out of the, uh, the local people there and, uh, just make a, a mess of things. Uh, just one, <laughs> one thing that I thought was, uh, was funny. There's, there's a black guy named Jackson in the group. Uh, they're talking about how they were disassembling furniture and just, raising hell in this city and says jackson pistols drawn lurched into the street valley vowing to shoot the ass off jesus christ that long-legged white son of a bitch um i don't know i I just thought that was funny this is how wild these guys had gotten um how wild and drunk um and the fact that jackson thinks that uh jesus christ is white (laughs) it's just funny um i don't know whether he is or not i don't know anything about that i just thought that it was a it was a funny little uh not clip, but excerpt, funny little sentence. Uh, basically when they're leaving, uh, this is a good, this is an indicator that, uh, the people are no longer happy with them for the long time. The people, uh, liked the scalp hunters because they were keeping the Indians at bay, but because these guys are so, um, rowdy and so rambunctious and so, um, evil, I mean, they're scalping Mexicans all over the place, uh, which they're not supposed to do uh, the people turn on them that, you know, when they left Chihuahua city, they left in this, uh, wild parade of people loving them because they're going to go keep the Indian populations at bay. Um, and the Indian attacks at bay. Well, when they're leaving, uh, when they're, when they're here, um, people start riding on the walls, uh, mejor los indios, which means, uh, better the Indians. So they would rather have the Indians than these scalp hunters. And so everything is kind of turning on them and then they have to, Basically, they have to flee uh, the Mexican army at this point. So, um, so when we see, okay. Oh, this this kind of is a little uh, little excerpt uh, on page one eighty to where uh, they're just kind of uh, messing with people. Um, yeah, Toad Vine. Toad Vine shows a little bit of uh, disdain for what they're doing as well. He says, them sons of bitches ain't bothering nobody. Um, Van Diemen, Van uh, So, yeah. Basically, they're just messing with a bunch of people that they shouldn't be messing with. Um, I think the final thing that I want to, uh, to approach is uh, the judge's outlook on war. Um, and what war means to man and what man's relationship to war is. This is going to be on 259. I'll find the chapter for you. Let's see. XVII, I believe that is chapter 17. Um, let's see. Yeah, they're eating an antelope. They watched him. The subject was war. 
The good book says that he lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. That he who lives, that he that lives by the sword shall perish by the sword, said the black. The judge smiled, his face shining with grease. What right man would have it any other way, he said. The good book does indeed count war and evil, said Irving. Yet there, there's many a bloody tale of war inside it. It makes no difference what men think of war, said the judge. War endures. As well ask men what they think of stone. Or as well ask men what they think of stone. War was always here. Before man was war. Oh, before man was, war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be. That way and not some other way. He turned to Brown, from whom he'd heard some whispered slur or uh, demur. Ah, Davy, he said. It's your own trade we honor here. Why not rather take a small bow? Let each acknowledge each other. My trade? Certainly. What is my trade? War. War is your trade, is it not? Ain't it yours? Mine too. Very much so. What about all them notebooks and bones and stuff? All other trades are contained in that of war. Is that why war endures? No. It endures because young men love it and old men love it in them. Those that fought, those that did not. That's your notion. The judge smiled. Men are born for games, nothing else. Every child knows that play is nobler than work. He knows, too, that the worth or merit of a game is not inherent in the game itself, but rather in the value of that which is put at hazard. Games of choice require a wager to have meaning at all. Games of sport involve the skill and strength of the opponents, and the humiliation of defeat and the pride of victory are in themselves sufficient stake because they inherit... They inhere the worth of the principles and define them. But trial of chance or trial of worth all games aspire to the condition of war, for here that is which wager swallows up game, player, and all. <coughs> Suppose two minute cards with nothing to wager save their lives. Who has not heard such a tale? A turn of the card, the whole universe for such a player has labored, clanking to this moment, which will tell if he is to die at that man's hand or that man at his. What more certain validation of a man's worth could there be? This enhancement of the game to its ultimate state admits no argument concerning the notion of fate. The selection of one man over another is a preference absolute and irrevocable, and it is a dull man indeed who could reckon so profound a decision without agency or significance either one. In such games, in such games as have for their stake the annihilation of the defeated, and the decisions are quite clear. This man holding this particular arrangement of cards in his hand is thereby removed from existence. This is the nature of war, whose stake is at once the game and the authority and the justification. Seen so, war is the truest form of divination. It is the testing of one's will and the will of another that the larger will be will which because it binds. Sorry. Seen so, war is the truest form of divination. It is the testing of one's will and the will of another within that larger will, which, because it binds them, is therefore forced to select. War is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. Brown studied the judge. You're crazy, Holden. Crazy at last. The judge smiled. Might does not make it right, said Irving. The man that wins in some combat is not vindicated morally. Moral law is an invention of mankind and a disfranchisement of the powerful in favor of the weak. 
Historical law subverts it at every turn. A moral view can never be proven right or wrong by an ultimate test. A man falling dead in a duel is not thereby is not thought thereby to be proven in error as to his views. His very involvement in such a trial gives evidence of a new and broader view. The willingness of the principles to forgo further argument as the tri triviality which it in fact is and to petition directly to the chambers of the historical absolute clearly indicates of how little, little movement are of how little moment are the opinions of are the opinions and of what the great moment the divergence thereof sorry guys <sighs> for the argument is indeed trivial but not so the separate wills thereby made manifest man's vanity may well approach the infinite capacity but his knowledge remains imperfect and however much he comes to value his judgments ultimately he must submit them before a higher court here there can be no such special pleading here are considerations of equity and 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 rectitude and moral right rendered void and without warrant and here are the views of the litigants despised decisions of life and death of what shall be and what shall not beggar all question of right in elections of these magnitude are all lesser in elections of these magnitudes are all lesser once subsumed moral spiritual natural the judge searched out the circle for disputants but what says the priest he says tobin looked up the priest does not say the priest does not say, said the judge. Nile diss it. But the priest has said, for the priest has put by the robes of his craft and taken up the tools of that higher calling which all men of honor. Of that higher calling which all men honor. The priest also would be no god server but a god himself. Tobin shook his head. You've a blasphemous tongue, Holden. And in truth, I was never a priest but only a, a novitiate to the order journeyman priest or apprentice priest said the judge men of god and men of war have strange affinities i'll not second say you i'll not second say you in your notions said tobin don't ask it ah priest said the judge what could i ask of you that you've not already given so maybe this is why um i don't know maybe maybe the theory here is that uh men in general give in to the devil i don't know maybe this is my my thought here is that maybe ultimate depravity is i don't know what that actually means so please don't take me for my word on that but um men are at their very nature evil um and that's why priests the priest the, the the person that is supposed to be the representation for god i guess falls into because he is still a man falls into evil um the judge as you'll see never really falls um what is he saying here? What is he saying about war? Basically, what he's saying is that this this idea that good and bad is uh is determined by morals um can't be true because there's no ultimate test that that people can see. I guess and I hate to say it, but I don't know that it makes sense because I don't think that it does, but what he's saying is that because I can't see it, because I can't see this ultimate test come to fruition, um, it must not be the ultimate test. And so the ultimate test is war. It's who can kill the other man. This is why um, people that don't believe in God, a lot of times uh, 
believe you know the strong versus the weak it's a man eat man out there because that's the ultimate test that you can see uh who are we to say that we are more moral that we have better morals than one another because our morals to what is right and wrong are never truly put to the test until never never truly proven right until after death and nobody knows what happens after death so it's an unprovable hypotheses i guess is is basically what the what the judge is saying here and that may be the most coherent thought i've had uh in the whole fucking book but um basically what i think he's saying here um is that the reason he believes that that war is god that um war is the ultimate test is because he can actually see the results of it Um, we know who is the winner here who has the correct morals the man that wins and kills the other man that's why he's so invested in war I think is what he's trying to say here. And, you know, the priest falls into war and uh, he's trying to get the priest to say that, you know, God is war and that war is the ultimate the ultimate game with the ultimate wager. Um, he says, I'll not second say you and your notions. Don't ask it. Ah, priest, says the judge. What could I ask of you that you've not already given? So, the, you know, the, the priest has already fallen into this war. Um so what he's saying is, you can doubt me all you want, but you're sitting here, dog. Uh, you left priesthood. So, um, basically, um, they go and they find a femur of a woolly mammoth, I think, is is what they decide it is. Um, towards the next part of this page. Um, let's see. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that has any... I put it down here to talk about it. Basically, um, he draws this femur in his book, and he says, There is no mystery to it, he said. The recruits blinked dully. Your heart's desire is to be told some mystery. The mystery is that there is no mystery. He rose and moved away into the darkness beyond the fire. I said the ex-priest watching his pipe cold in his teeth, and no mystery, as if he were no mystery himself, the bloody old hoodwinker. So basically the judge is trying to say that uh, the world is what it is. There, There is no mystery that uh, this death and this evil, that's all there is. And uh, that humans and their fuel, foolishness keep searching for religion and mystery um, and that there is none. And, you know, the, the priest is sitting there and he's like, dude, you are a whole mystery. Um, you are the mystery. Um, he said, as if he were no mystery himself, the bloody old hoodwinker. Um what does it mean? I don't know. Which is a general theme is that I don't know. <laughs> I don't know shit. <laughs> this book has got me all tore up, folks. Um, I think that's what it's supposed to do. I've said that a couple times, but I think that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to do that. It's supposed to get you all tore up. It's supposed to get you asking the hard questions. Uh, that's what it's supposed to do. And I'm going to keep telling myself that because I can't understand it. Guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I think that concludes uh, this episode. We're at about an hour or 30 of just me talking straight so i'm getting a little tired um and i I mean i'm at the end of the section i don't have any other notes on this section um finished it out but what does this mean basically again try to draw your own conclusions from this book um i've given you what i think is significant uh what i've kind of drawn from that uh basically the idea and let me try to put this together in a coherent fashion which i don't really know if i can is that the judge is this representation of the devil, um, of a demon of this world that is so obsessed with this world and the way it is that he's forsaken God and that he's um, God no longer speaks to him, or maybe God has forsaken him, I think. Uh, Tobin, it seems to me 
that this guy is some sort of noble um, noble representation of what God what God is. Again, why he kills Indians, I don't have a fucking clue. Um, I would really like for Tobin to be this um, this wonderful guy that never kills Indians that is with the gang for some for his only purpose to be to to serve the kid in a positive direction. I don't know that that's true. Um, I don't know why it's not true. Uh, I don't know why that Tobin, who would make a perfect representation for God in this in this scenario, is not a perfect representation of God. And maybe maybe the judge isn't a perfect representation of the devil, uh, which is probably correct. But that's kind of what I've got in my head right now. After reading this book, after pouring back over it, after seeing the things that have been said, and the kid again. The reason that I think he stands in for um, anybody in the world, uh, what we're dealing with right now, uh, when I say what we're dealing with, in society, your life right now, you are the kid. Um, You lived in this depraved place of war and of evil. Um, You partake in it. Uh, You don't always feel good about partaking in it. Sin feels bad when we do it. We know that we shouldn't be doing it for some reason. Um, this kid has sympathy for the things that they do, yet he does them anyway. Uh, not sympathy, but remorse for the things that they do, yet he does them anyway. And he's torn between the judge and uh, and and Tobin. Uh, Tobin's in his ear saying, don't listen to that fool. Uh, the judge is in his ear saying, I am God. God is war. Uh, war is God. Um, and the kid's kind of drawn to him. And there's, there's also a thought that... Uh, the judge wants to take the kid in like a father, but the kid is rejecting his father, which is, I guess, similar to, I don't know, um, that, that could have something to do with, you know, the earlier tale that we got told about, uh, the traveler. Um, there's, there's thoughts in here that the judge wants the kid to be his son, um, that he finds this kid who is born in violence and that knows nothing but a mindless taste for violence and says, I can make this kid my ultimate son, the son that he throws to the dogs, uh, the son that, you know, sets out for three doors and gets to pick which one holds the lion behind it or doesn't hold the lion behind it. Um, the judge sees an opportunity for his perfect son, and the kid doesn't accept it. Why does he not accept it? Maybe it's because he's got this this greater calling um, from Tobin. That's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking right now. Let me know what you think. Uh, if you get into this and read this, um, I have this fear at night that nobody is actually reading this book and I'm doing this all for nothing. <laughs> but I hope that eventually one of y'all will uh, will read it one day and let me know what you think. Um, that's kind of where I'm at. And again, as much as uh, this book brings me pain, uh, I really enjoyed it because of the questions that it makes me ask about myself. Um, So tune in for the next episode where we discuss the final section of the book uh, in which things happen that I can't tell you because, you know, some of you may be actually reading along with me. So uh, the next section of the book gets really good. And I think it calls into uh, calls into account some of the it calls into account. I don't know if that means anything. It, it, It provides a little bit of evidence for what I'm thinking uh, for this dynamic that I think I've created that I think is a little bit unique. Some people have said that the judge is the devil. I haven't really heard many people say that Tobin is the representation of, of some sort of God or good in the world. And that the kid is, is every man. And again, I think it's odd that he doesn't have a name. Everybody thinks it's odd that he doesn't have a name. Nobody knows why he doesn't have a name. Um, 
he has no name. And I think that's because he has all of us. You could put any name in that spot and the story would be true. I think, uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, I haven't really heard anybody put it like that. So let me know what you think. And I appreciate you for listening guys. Tune in on Sunday. We will have, uh, I hope you, I hope you like Clint Walker. This is dropping after Clint Walker. Um, Clint Walker was a really, really cool uh, guest, I thought. He had a lot of good stuff to offer. Uh, keep listening to those Sunday episodes as well. If, if you're here and you found the book club episode, I'm super happy that you stayed and stuck with me through all of my bad reading out loud. I promise, guys, I, and it's not for for lack of trying. I, <laughs> I read over these time and time again. I read it in my head. I read it out loud. Read it in my head. Read it out loud. Try to get the cadence down. Uh, try to get the words down. And then when I sit in front of this mic, it's just awful. And again, I would do retakes. Um, I actually did that on some of the earlier episodes for uh, um, meditations and stuff like that. But it turns a two-hour recording into a four-hour recording. And so you're just going to have to bear with it until I get good at it, which maybe never. But anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Tune in on Sunday for the regular podcast. Tune in on Wednesday for the Purpose Book Club. Thank you.